morning. I want to welcome uh, you to this place, and uh, thanks for filling this, uh, this theater with your, your songs, your sound, your voices, your presence. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, or uh, if you're new uh, here, actually, just one of the things to note in your bulletin that we're having what we call URCC 101, and that's just uh, an opportunity for you to find out a little bit more about this church. Maybe this is your first day, you've been coming for a few months, uh, any, anyone really who's coming in the last six months, if you've never been to a 101 and you kind of have questions that you want to ask and there's things that don't, uh, we don't always get into on a Sunday morning, but you want to find out a little bit more how you can connect and all that kind of stuff, we'd invite you to join us for that. So that's a deba- in your bulletin, you can see it's in a couple weeks um, from now, and that's hosted by our uh, staff at the church and a couple of our elders. So we'd love to, uh, love to have you there. I, was, uh, I came across a story about a, a truck driver who had been uh, doing a long haul, and he'd, he'd been going for a while, and so he pulled into a rest stop because he needed a break, and uh, pulled up to this diner and, and sat down and uh, ordered a hamburger and fries and some coffee, and he was beginning to eat, and, and three guys walked in, leather jackets, you know, bike helmets and everything, and clearly a, a, a tough group of bikers, and they started to sort of, you know, bother this guy, and they were sort of uh, kind of verbally sort of abusing him and pushing him around. One guy picked up his hamburger and started eating it. Another guy started eating his fries. Another guy slammed his coffee. And the waitress is watching this whole thing unfold, thinking, what, like, what's going to happen here? The guy was so calm. He got up from the, from the counter and, and walked away from these guys and put his bill on the table and paid with his cash, and he walked out. And the waitress was amazed and sort of walked to the door after him and, and stood at the door while he drove away. She came back, and the, one of the guys said, oh, not much of a man, was he? She said, yeah, not much of a truck driver either. He smashed three motorbikes on his way out. <laughs> it's the age-old problem, right? What do you do when someone has wronged you? What do you do when someone's offended you? Now, we can laugh at the joke, but the truth is, like, this is, if you think about this, I just thought, thought about this, how much of our lives are taken up with wrestling with this question, with this problem? What do you do when someone's offended you? Now, if you're a parent, you know you're, you're trying to teach your kids to respond in constructive ways um, because you live in any kind of family. You know from what you were growing up that as family, you're slammed together. And I was realizing this in my own family. Man, like, it's actually hard sometimes to like your family if you're siblings, right? You might like your parents. You like each other if you're married. But siblings, I mean, you're just kind of thrown together and have to figure life out together, competing with each other. And so you're trying to teach them, well, how do you get along? What do you do when your brother or your sister does something to you that you don't like? But it's not even just a family problem, and it's certainly not a modern problem. In fact, if you look at the history of the world, we have been trying to figure this out forever. If you do a quick scan of CNN's homepage or newspaper, whatever it is you get your daily news, conflicts that are centuries old are still going. Racial tensions, conflicts between countries, conflicts between ethnic groups, conflicts between tribes, Conflicts between friends, family members. Old things die hard, and they take a long time. And so at a micro level, in, in each individual life, in each relationship that's close to you, and at a macro level, big picture, we are constantly, as people think about this, we are constantly dealing with that issue. How do I respond when someone has hurt me, when someone has done something wrong? How do they respond to me when I've done something wrong to them? Now, here's the question we're wrestling with when we wrestle with that, the deeper question. Who's going to pay for this? All wrongdoing creates a debt. We don't use that language, but that's what we say, and we say we're looking for payment. 
How is this going to be paid? How is this going to be made up? What has happened between us, between countries, between these tribes, between these families, between this couple, between these neighbors has created a hole, a debt. And who's going to pay for this? That's what the person who is angry with someone who has wronged them is saying. You have to pay for this. In most cases, the conflicts aren't simply about, this costs $5. Are you going to give me $5 to replace that? It's the kind of payment that is more intangible. And yet, that's what we're asking for. Who's going to pay for this? Or we may find that as someone who has wronged someone else. How am I going to pay for that? I can't go back in time. I can't change that. How am I going to pay for this? And for those that are demanding payment and perhaps feeling like they have not received it or received enough, anger, frustration, bitterness, unforgiveness is taking root. For those that feel as if they need to pay but don't know how because they can't go back in time, guilt, shame, despair, And even if it's not just us reminding ourselves who's going to pay for it, someone else may be reminding, hey, are you going to pay for this? Or you're going to pay for this? Now, the the modern response, maybe as we live in, in North America, would be, well, just let it go. Just let it go. The the person who's been wrong, hey, just just let it go. Get over it. People do that. Ah. That's just your mother. That's just your brother. That's just that guy. Ah, just get over it. That's who they are. Let it go. We can't let it go because the payment is outstanding. Somebody needs to pay. And maybe we've tried and we can't let it go and still we're hanging on. Or perhaps if we feel like we've wronged someone we don't know what to do. I have often people say this is I, I can't forgive myself. I, I know I need to forgive myself, but I can't. It's a statement that says, I can't let it go. I don't know how to move on from this. Guilt and shame seem to be a part of what I'm dealing with. Now, whether this is your present reality or perhaps this is digging up some things from your past or this is just a reality of life and if you haven't faced it, you will. And so what do we do when we're in this place of feeling like we should just let it go and yet we can't let it go? Because what happens is we are being robbed of joy. When you are hanging on to something that you cannot let go of, your hands aren't open enough to hold joy. This anger and bitterness with someone else, unforgiveness, or not being able to forgive ourselves is like a toothache or a canker sore and that if you try to enjoy your best, your favorite meal, it's just going to, it's going to bother. It's not going to, nothing's going to taste good with that thing bugging you. Or you have a bum knee or a sore back that acts up every time you want to go for a hike, you're playing a sport or you're horsing around with friends or your kids. It's like, ah, this is infecting everything that I'm doing. It's like that. Unforgiveness robs joy. It seeps into every part of our lives. Whether we feel like we can't forgive someone else or we're trying to forgive ourselves and we can't let it go. Now what I love, one of the things I love about the Bible that I've said to you so many times is I find it not to be trite and cliche when it comes to complex problems. Whereas our prevailing worldview would be, hey, just find your little moment of peace, meditate for a bit, try to, try to get rid of it, try to let it go, just try to be positive about yourself, think better about yourself, or try to think better about other people, try to be kind and loving. The Bible has no such simple responses to it. It treats this issue very, very um, seriously 
and affirms what we feel inside, that indeed, whenever wrong is done, a debt is created. And an unpaid debt is something unforgiven. The Bible uses the word sin to describe these things that create debts. And we said when we started talking about sin, that sin is not actually a negative word, it's a hopeful word, because it explains, it's an answer to the question that we all have, which is what is wrong with the world? Why do we keep doing this to each other? What's wrong with the world out there? What's wrong with the world in here? The Bible says that we have a bent towards sin, which is essentially to push God out of the middle of the center. And so now everything is out of orbit in our lives. And therefore, we have wronged God and we wrong each other and we have wrongs done to us. And this is sin and it creates debt and debt creates the need for payment. And here's the thing the Bible actually goes further to explain that actually if we think about it long enough, we realize it's true. Not only does sin create debt, but debt requires payment, and that payment is death. It's death. Think about this for a moment. In a relationship that has gone sour because something has happened, and pain and anger and bitterness come in, what is happening to the relationship? It's dying. It will die. Sometimes very quickly. Sometimes it blows apart. But sometimes something, something small sometimes comes in. And over time, what is happening? Small things, unaddressed, over time, lead to a drift, which leads to death. What was supposed to be alive and life-giving is slowly dying. In fact, we know this. Psychologists, sociologists, doctors tell us that it actually creates physical death too. The Mayo Clinic, which spends hundreds of millions of dollars every year in research, identifies unforgiveness as one of the key catalysts to stress, um, depression, heart failure, blood pressure. That the body actually that is hanging on to a debt unpaid is actually dying. And the Bible explains this to us and says, it's nothing short of death that is happening when there is a debt unpaid. Death to relationships, death to the body, and even death to the psyche in the self and the mind that cannot let go of what one has done and guilt and shame continue to rack. What is happening to the self? It is dying psychologically. Relationally, psychologically, physically, and spiritually we know with God, all sin creates a payment and a, a, a debt, and a debt unpaid is death. It begins to creep in. And so this actually begins to explain something that many of us might find very strange if we begin to read the Bible. Is that when God brought his people together and he said, look, this debt that is between us and between you that is ki literally killing you, we need to do something about. And it's interesting that God's remedy involved death. Some of the longest books in the Old Testament, the ones we could, like, hate reading or never want to read, we hear other people talk about how bad they are, so we're not going near them is a long, painstaking process of God addressing this issue of outstanding debt. And he established a sacrificial system, something that the modern person finds totally bizarre at best and offensive at worst, is the killing of animals. Sacrificing of animals to pay debt. This is how God set it up with his people. He said, you have sin in your lives, that you sin against each other. And against me. And so when you come to worship me, you're going to need a priest to offer sacrifices on your behalf. And those sacrifices are not going to be your blood. 
It's going to be a substitute, a pure spotless animal that will be killed in your place. Now again, the modern person finds this very strange and offensive. Why would we be killing animals? Because death is the only thing that can result to pay a debt. It is the only appropriate payment. And if you think about it for a moment, we actually all want bloodshed when we are wronged. We don't say it, but we're all out for blood when someone has wronged us. We don't want justice to get held up in the machinery of legal gears. We want blood. We want a head to roll. Who's going to pay for that? Someone has to pay. We don't take it into our own hands, but something, and you, I've mentioned this before, it's why we love movies about vigilante justice. We love seeing debts get paid in blood because there's something in us that says, blood must spill for this. Something must be paid that is appropriate for the grief and the spilling of my own blood and the shedding of my own tears. And so God establishes this sacrificial system with the people and said, here's what's going to happen. You're going to kill an animal in your place that's going to pay for your sins, the sins you've committed against each other and the sins you've committed against me. Well, what's interesting as we're reading the Old Testament, something in us would find this unsatisfactory. This cannot be enough. How could the blood of, an, of Fluffy the lamb deal with the sin that I have committed against God or against my friend or my brother or my spouse or this tribe or that country? How could that pay for this? And in fact, what we find at the end of the Old Testament is that this system of blood payment has in no way fixed the problem of conflict, has in no way fixed the problem of unforgiveness. And what we find is actually death is creeping in and continuing to, and it is splitting apart families, and it is splitting apart people and bodies, and it is creating a rift between human beings and their relationship with God. And so God must send a remedy that's going to deal with this in a proper way. And so what we find in Jesus when he comes to rescue us is he deals with this issue of the debt that was killing us. The book of Hebrews, is, as uh, Tony and I have been uh, talking to you about the last couple of weeks, is a book that explains how Christ is the event that has changed everything. That he is the, the one that splits the history of time, in a sense, from B.C., everything before Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. Now everything is A.D., Anno Domine, the year of our Lord. Everything after is defined by our Lord. Everything in the past is explained by him, that he is the event, not just in history, but in your life and my life, that as we struggle to know him and figure out who was this man, to understand he is the event, this is the claim of the Bible, that he is the event that has changed everything. And he has truly changed this particular issue that we have about what we do when someone has wronged us. I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 9, reading from the New Living Translation. I felt like that, this one was one of the best translations for this passage. And I want to reach in. I want you to listen to how the writer of Hebrews is explaining what I've just said to you. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14, and then 19 to 10, 4. So Christ has now become the high priest over all the good things that have come. 
He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not a part of this created world, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place. That was the place where the high priest would offer the sacrifice for all time, and he has secured our redemption forever. <clears throat> Under the old system, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer could cleanse people's bodies from ceremonial impurity. In other words, their external bodies. But just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Now he's going back to explain how it was before. For after Moses had read each of God's commands to the people, this is what you're supposed to do. Don't steal, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't lie. Don't have any other gods before God. He took the blood of calves and goats along with water and sprinkled both the book of the law and God's people using hyssop branches and scarlet wool. And then he said this, this blood confirms the covenant God has made with you. And in the same way he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and everything used for worship, I'm sure Cineplex is really glad we don't worship like that anymore. In fact, <coughs> according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because the debt must be paid. The debt leads to death, so only death can pay it. That's why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies, in other words, they were, they were just the beginnings of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven, meaning the real things of life, the true heart, the inside, had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again ever since the world began. But now once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. Oh, Apple, fail me now. This isn't working. That's good. Where are we? The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the old of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
The writer of Hebrews is pointing out to this people and saying, yes, blood was needed, but how possibly could animals pay for this sin? How possibly could that fix this? In fact, it wasn't enough. The people had to do it over and over and over again. And he said, they may have been ceremonially clean, but it was not powerful enough to cleanse their consciences. The inside, the guilt, the frustration, the anger, the hurt. In fact, we know, because we can say, well, yeah, of course, why would that help this? But we actually know no blood, no human being could pay. If we could pay for each other's sins, revenge would stop. Blood would be enough. Eventually, someone would say, hey, we've shed enough blood, and yet we just seem to find new ways of doing it. And you know, if you've ever been in that place where you want payment, even when you get it, it can't bring it back. Even a, a revenge killing cannot bring back the victim who was killed. Even the hurt you want to exact upon someone, it cannot fix what has happened. And in fact, deep down, you don't actually feel any better when you've taken your pound of flesh. And those of us that feel as if we have to pay, we know nothing is ever enough. I'm always reminded of what I didn't do before. It never seems to be enough for the person I need to pay back, and it never seems to be enough for myself. It would be impossible for anything, anyone to pay for what has been done. Why? Because all sin ultimately is against God. All sin is against God. Every sin that happens in this place we do with one another, we commit against each other, is all against God. You understand this, right? If you're a parent and you have children and you see one who's getting mad at the other, I have wrath that I shouldn't have with my kids, but I have wrath that I should have with them. Wrath that I shouldn't have is when they're, bu they're bugging me. So I'm trying to get something done or I'm watching TV or whatever and, and they're fighting and so now I have to stop what I'm doing. Well, then I'm upset, but that's, that's silly. That's childish and immature and I, that needs to change. But there is wrath when one of them is taking advantage of another. It has nothing to do with me. No one's hurting me. But I need to intervene. Why? Because all of them are my children. When one of them says something mean to another one, I hurt for the one who was spoken against because he's mine. I sometimes say to my boys, don't talk to my wife like that. They didn't say anything to me. But I'm defending her honor because her honor matters to me. Just God, imagine how much more God feels about all his creation when we do things to each other. And he says, don't talk to my son or daughter like that. You cannot take their life. They're mine. God has a righteous wrath towards sin because everything is his. Every lie is an affront to the truth that he put at the core of the foundation of the world and says, this is the way the world works. It works on truth, not on lies. Every act of hatred of one against another is an offense to God who loves all. Every act of violence within marriage is an affront to God who said this is good that a man and woman would be together and love. Every abuse of power is an affront to God who says I am the defender of the weak. I am near to those who are oppressed. So every debt, every debt payment ultimately must be paid to God and who on earth could pay that back? No one. It is a colossal debt. 
How much more, if we even feel sometimes we can't pay each other back, how could we ever pay God back who owns everything and who has never sinned? And therefore, Hebrews says, God has given a payment for sin that is better than any animal and better than any pound of flesh that we could exact from one another. And it was enough, not just to deal with the external things, but to actually begin to cleanse the conscience. It is the blood of Jesus. Many of the songs that we sing are about his blood. And it is his blood that cleanses us. It is his blood that, was, that flowed for us. It was his blood that paid. He was the payment that we are all looking for. And here's what that means. I, I, I put it in a little sentence so you could remember it. Jesus let it flow so I can let it go. Jesus let it flow so I can let it go. His blood flowed so I can let it go. For those of us that want payment for sin, the blood flow of Jesus is that payment. What we are looking for in vengeance is what we see on the cross in the vengeance of God and his wrath poured out. You see, in the garden, God comes to Jesus and says, there is righteous wrath. I have the right to be angry and demand payment from everyone on earth for all that they have done. And this is the cup of my wrath. Either they're going to drink it or you're going to drink it. Who will it be? And Jesus says, it'll be me. The wrath of God, righteous wrath, poured out on humanity for sin, which we see little glimpses of when we are angry at someone who has hurt us or we feel the death that we have. It is the wrath of God in a sense that we feel within us, either directed towards us or that we want to direct to someone else. And God says, either you all have to drink this or somebody else. And the reason Jesus was enough was because he was the one pure human being who had never committed sin, who did not owe anyone anything who said, I will drink it all for them. And because he was God, it was acceptable. And so God says, it is done. Because Jesus' blood flowed, you and I can let it go. Now, how do we do that? What does that actually mean? Two things. First of all, it means we need to discover our identity as the forgiven. That first and foremost, the thing that defines us, our identity, is that we have been forgiven and we are the forgiven. You see, if you let any other identity you have in life dominate your consciousness, whenever that identity is offended, you will hold on to unforgiveness. Right? If you are an employee, if your job means the most to you, if you're ever wronged in there or your boss does or you lose that job, you will have bitterness. Why? Because at the very root of who you are, you have been rejected. And you are angry because your identity is what you do. If your identity is as a husband or a wife, then every time your spouse wrongs you, or if you lose that status or that standing, or your marriage falls apart, you will fall apart and bitterness and anger will come in. Why? Because that was the root of your identity. If your identity is that you are a parent, then every time your child, young or old, rejects you or does something, you will respond to them in anger or be 
seriously broken and hurt because they have offended you, because that's your primary identity. But if we come to the cross as people realizing I have a debt owing that I could not pay, and at the cross I realize that grace flowed down to me, now I am the forgiven. That is my identity. It trumps my gender, it trumps my ethnicity, it trumps my social status, it trumps my job, it trumps my family life stage. I am first and foremost the forgiven. Friends, this is the beginning of being able to let it go. It's not self-forgiveness. You cannot forgive yourself because you didn't wrong you. How can you forgive you? Only the one who you have wronged can say, it's paid in full. And on the cross, what did Jesus say? It's finished. This is paid in full. It's not self-forgiveness. It's saying, I have been forgiven, therefore I can let it go. I can never pay for what I've done. I can't go back and change the past. Jesus has paid it all. And when I look at him, I realize I can let it go because I am forgiven. Only when we come to grips. See, those of us that have done things that we thought we would never do, we are closer to understanding the cross than those of us that think, oh, I'm fine. Oh, I make mistakes. I'm a mistaker in need of correction, not a sinner in need of forgiveness. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells this story, and I think I've said it before. Supposing your friend comes over and you say, oh, can you just stay here? I gotta go run an errand, and you go pick up some milk from the store, and you come back, and your friend says, oh, someone was here, and, and uh, there was a debt outstanding that you had, but I paid it for you. What are you gonna ask? Well, what debt? Was it postage paid? Well, thanks for the 56 cents. Thanks. Or was it that debt that I had incurred and then incurred more because I was gambling, trying to pay it off, and I was looking at five, six, $700,000, and this was starting to ruin my life because it was wrecking my marriage and it was wrecking my, my body because I was getting stressed and I was having to work extra hard. And I'd made, Now, well, you're going to shake their hand? No, you're going to fall at their feet and weep and say, I can't believe you paid that for me. Only when we understand the debt that we owed ultimately was to a God that we could never pay. And that on, on the cross, Jesus says, this wasn't postage paid. I paid the debt that was killing you. It's gone. You have a new life. When we get that and our identity is the forgiven, now everything begins to change. And therefore, we do the second thing, <clears throat> which is dwelling on our pain at the cross. See, for those of us that have been so wounded, and righteous anger comes from within us and says, there has to be payment for this. God, really? See, we're holding on because we want the other person to pay. And all the while, we are paying. The debt is always being paid, in a sense, either by the person we wanted to, or we're, we're punishing them, or we're bringing up old memories, or we're refusing to talk to them, or we haven't seen them at this family gathering, or we just won't go by their house, or we don't call them anymore. But ultimately, we're still paying it at the same time. And the vengeance that we want to be poured out on them, we look at the cross and say, oh my God, you poured it out. You did. Payment was made for this on Jesus. I take my pain and I dwell on it at the cross because I see the wrath of God poured out. And not only that, the cross becomes my model for forgiveness. You talk to any psychologist, whether they're people of faith or not, and they will tell you, psychotherapy, they'll say the beginning point 
Forgiveness is the thing that releases us. It is the, most, is the primary blocker in most of our lives. And the way that forgiveness begins is we have to honestly look our pain in the eye. We cannot dismiss it. We cannot say it didn't happen. We cannot try to move on. We can't just let it go. We have to look at it. But how do you look at your pain without becoming bitter again? You look at the cross. And what does the cross tell us about forgiveness? That Jesus was willing to bear the marks of another person's sin. Isn't that what we struggle with when we have been wronged? I don't want to bear these marks. Some of us may even have physical marks from someone else's sin. But certainly we all have wounds inside. And what we, what we reject in this idea of unforgiveness is I don't want to pay for that. I don't want to bear the marks of someone else's sin. And on the cross we see, because we are the forgiven, that Jesus was willing to bear the marks of all sin. And therefore he becomes the beginning point of me being able to release the one that I want payment for. Not only because he has paid it, but he has showed me that he was willing to bear the marks of someone else's sin. That is the beginning of forgiveness. Tim Keller put it like this. On the cross, we see God doing visibly and cosmically what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. Some of us have made unforgiveness such a way of life. It's, it's like layers of clothing that we have put on. And we need to begin to let God kind of chip through those. But the only way to do it is not to say, oh, try to be a bigger person. Try to be a better person. Try to let it go. No, come to the cross where you see the wrath that you want to be poured out being poured out. Where you see the God that has ultimately forgiven you of a debt that you could never pay. So therefore, you are the forgiven. And when we are the forgiven, grace begins to flow from him to us, from us to others. There is no other enduring source of grace that I know than from him because he has forgiven the debt that I could never pay. And now I realize, wait, why am I making this other person pay when Jesus has paid it all? It is the beginning. It's not an instantaneous thing, but it is the beginning point of understanding, wait a second, grace flows from him to me and from me Here's what I want to do this morning. We're actually going to, Kurt's going to lead us and the team, you guys want to come up in a worship time response. But I felt like we wanted to give some time for some of you that want to receive prayer for this to come forward and be prayed for. And so there's going to be a, a couple of elders and myself and Tony praying and a couple of women from our prayer ministry team. Some of you may want to be prayed for by a woman. That's totally fine uh, as well. So they'll be out here at the front while the worship team's keeping us. And I just know from myself that the beginning of this is prayers coming to him and saying, some of you may be in that place, you're saying, Jesus, I have not been able to forgive myself for what I've done. I can't let it go. So, but you have let it flow. So I need you to, to, I need to receive your forgiveness. I need to receive your grace. I need to let that penetrate my heart and realize I am forgiven. I don't need to pay it all because you paid it all. So some of you may need to come forward and say, I want to know his forgiveness for me. And others of you may say, I want to let this go. I want to let go what I have been holding on to. And let me just say this, we, we have no power to pronounce that over you, but we pray in Jesus' name who does. And for some of you, the coin may drop today, and today may be the day that the darkness parts and light comes to flood your soul. And for others, it may be the beginning of a crack of something that opens up. And we have a prayer ministry team that meets with people on an ongoing basis. If you feel like you need more prayer after this morning, that this was just the beginning of something, by all means, talk to any of the people that were up here at the front. We can get you connected with someone who will 
spend some time praying with you. But don't miss an opportunity this morning to say, hey, if he has let it flow, then I want to let it go. And it's not about self-forgiveness and it's not about moving on and try to be a better person. It's about receiving what he has done for me. And so if that's you, as the worship team leads, please just come forward and, and receive prayer. It won't be a long thing. and Don't be embarrassed about that. If some of you are inside like, I need it, I need it, I need it, then don't walk out today without getting it because he is offering that to you. And for those of you that stay in your seats, just continue to worship through these songs that reflect on the fact that he has done everything for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have paid it all. That there is no corner of our hearts and our lives where your grace does not flow. Forgive us for shying away from the thing that would, is most able to set us free. Woo our hearts to trust in you more because you have paid it all. That's why we have no other Savior. That's why there is no other name in which we pray. There is no other King and God that loves us like you do and washes us clean. So it is our delight to praise you. And I pray that whatever you have started, Lord, I don't need to say this to you, but as you do it, it's who you are. But would you finish it? We thank you in your son's name. Amen. Just remain standing and I'll give you the benediction. The announcements are there for you. You can look at them. I just want to bless you with the knowledge that he is not finished with you yet. You know, Jesus said it is finished and he began something that is rolling like a wave coming and it's not finished yet until he returns, right? Every one of us that has, that has forgiven someone has taken a debt into our bodies and we have died. We have received the death in us just as Jesus did on the cross and we wait for the resurrection because the, the fixing of what has happened to you will not be completed in this life. And even if you feel, oh, it's resolved, you have no idea how much better it's gonna be on that day. Yes, the cross was there, but it is empty now. And Jesus rose from the dead, and the wounds that were there were gone. Uh, they were bleeding no more. And he used them, and he said to his disciples, see, let me explain to you everything about why things had to happen the way they had to happen. One day, you will receive that explanation. One day, you will receive payment in full. And until that day, hold on and know that my God is not finished with me yet. We say that together. My God is not finished with me yet. Amen. Thanks so much for coming. And 30-minute party's back up and running. So enjoy yourselves out there. <clears throat>